Welcome to Solidarity Socialism from Below podcast. I'm your host, Luke Pretz. In each episode, we take the time to talk with socialists in the U.S. and abroad about the local struggles they're involved with, the lessons they've learned, and how those struggles connect to the international movement for socialism. Joining me today is a comrade from Mexico City who's a member of Partido Revolucionario de los Trabajadores, commonly referred to by its initials, PRT. In English, the name translates to Workers' Revolutionary Party. Luis is also a member of the Fourth International, of which Solidarity is a sympathizing member. Today we'll be talking about the PRT, uh, a little bit about the political situation in Mexico, and the Fourth International, its history, what it is now, and its relationship to Trotskyism in the 21st century. So, bienvenido a Socialism from Below. Luis, how are you doing this morning? Hi, Luke. Thank you for the invitation. Quite work. Great. Great. Uh, I'm glad you're here. Um, my comrades in solidarity are very excited to hear uh, from you. So let's just get this interview going. Uh, so maybe just let's start out with just a little bit about kind of the local situation. What it, What is PRT? Uh, well, as you said, uh, PRT is uh, in Spanish, Partido Revolucionario de las y los Trabajadores, because in Spanish we don't have neutral gender words. So we use las and los for pointing out women and men, working people. Uh, we are an organ, a socialist organization that was founded uh, originally in 1976 or 78, I Oh man, I uh, 76. It wasn't 76. It was founded by uh, a process of unity and fusion of different socialist groups, most of them linked to different currents, what we now can call Trotskyism. And most of them were groups that were formed after the Mexican 68 movement, especially in the universities. So for making the story a, a little bit shorter. After the 68, these different kinds of uh, socialist, revolutionary socialist groups were formed around the 68 movement. And in a long period of push and splits, etc., they finally came out in a unity process in the, 60s, in the 66, founding the PRT. After that, the PRT experienced an unseen growth Trotskyist uh, and so revolutionary socialist, actually, organization, at least in Mexico and in most of the Latin American countries, made a very interesting experience in the trade unions, in the peasants' movement, uh, in what here in Mexico we said popular, urban popular movements, like in the barrios, in the, in the big cities, and so on. And uh, in the 82, for a period of around about 10 years or something like that, the PRT get legal recognition was uh, legalized in, in some way. So we took part in elections from the 82 to the early 90s. During the, that period, we also faced some interesting experiences. Most One of the most important is that in 82 and 88, uh, the PRT proposed uh, Rosario Barra de Piedra as our presidential candidate. She is uh, the mother of one of the victims of political disappearance during the 70s of a left-wing militant, Jesus Piedra, his her son, and also at the same time was the first woman that ran for president in the Mexican history. So that make us some also some experience in solidarity with all the victims of what we called the Guerra Sucia, the Dirt War. It's that period in the 70s where the Mexican state uh, disappeared thousands, hundreds at least, of, of socialist militants of different organizations. And one of the main leaders, Rosario Ibarra, as one of the main public figures. Well, after that, it's a very short story. When in the 88, the presidential elections were fraudulent, stolen by Carlos Salinas de Gortari against Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas. Uh, we say now that that opened a huge political crisis that ended up with, in one hand, the consolid the consolidation. I'm sorry for my English of uh, of the neoliberalist period uh, and governments in Mexico, and uh, at the same time with our loss of the 
electoral registration. So we are not able to take part in elections in them since the 90s. From then, well, we're still trying to organize in struggles and rebuild socialist lefts and so on. And in all this history, always the link between the PRT and the FI was a key issue for us, not just in a way of uh, learning experiences from other countries and so on, but also for uh, for helping us to understand the worldwide situation. For example, after the 88, majority of the socialist left that came from the 20s, from the 20th century, uh, basically disappeared, suicide itself, as we say now, in order to build what we in Latin American political culture we say nationalist politics. That it's important to make the remark that, as far as I know, nationalism is not seen, not has the same meaning here in Latin America than in the U.S. I, as far as I know, when you say nationalism in the U.S., you are thinking in neo-fascist or extreme right or something like that. Uh, here, most of course, there are kinds of expressions of neo-fascism, but when we say nationalist, we say like political currents that want to apply to some economic policies in order to make develop of the economist country, of the country's economy, with nationalist politics as taxes and public investment and so on. It's quite complex. It's, of course, uh, a whole topic that we can talk a lot about these phenomena. But in general, we can say that the continuity of, from the 88 nationalist current led by Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas gets now, finally, 30 years later, to the Mexican government of Andrés Manuel López Obrador, a nationalist politic in that perception. And, well, now we are facing what we now call a, a, a progressive government of López Obrador. This, we use now the so-called, we emphasize the so-called progressive government of López Obrador because we think that it's a late experience of what we've seen in the past years in some other countries of Latin America, like Ecuador, Brazil, Argentina, etc. But in another context, of course, in another country with different uh, historical backgrounds and so on, but also with many common points. But especially, and that's another point of how important it is to be internationally linked to a current as the FI is, because we can see at the same time some experiences that the revolutionary socialists had in those countries in order to try to understand our uh, situation now. And just for ending this first speech about the Mexican situation, the PRT, so now we think today, uh, we think that Lopez Obrador government is a kind of, in Marxist and Trotskyist terms, a kind of Bonapartist government that tries to rise up far away from the class struggle and the class conflicts and try to be a referee between classes in conflict. But uh, at the same time, he's facing huge hate and attacks from the most reactionary right-wing political expressions in the country and, at the same, and having some important popular support of ordinary and working class people. But at the same time, it's this government is trying and it's uh, having some success, succeed in that, as we think, uh, of stopping some struggles and especially trying to cool social conflicts and to cool social organiza organization from below in order to take them to some kind of lobbying and waiting until the government will solve all, this, all the problems that 30 years of neoliberalism gave to the, to the country. I think this is what you're, what you're reporting back to me and what you're describing about the kind of current political situation in Mexico is kind of in some ways similar to the United States uh, in that there's like this kind of new populism that's emerging. And I think that's kind of maybe the equivalent of the, the nationalism that you're talking about are kind of equivalent terms. And I think interestingly to me is like, uh, I guess Trump and AMLO are very different in many regards, although maybe they appeal to similar groups of people. I don't know. But I think one thing that's similar between them is I think both sets of politics are kind of this response to like a crisis in neoliberalism. Like, it's clear in the United States that, like, neoliberalism can't 
develop any further. We've we've implemented austerity as far as we can. Um, taxes have been cut for the wealthy as much as they can, and now capitalism can't develop any further. It's ran out of options within the the construct of, of neoliberal politics. And I think we're also seeing this elsewhere, especially in Latin America. You know, we have Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, and I guess you know other populist left populist governments emerging in Peru and Ecuador in Bolivia. So we see this kind of crisis of neoliberalism happening and in various different currents emerging to kind of fill that gap kind of based on the kind of the level of class struggle and class consciousness in the in those spaces. Although again, as you said, many of these movements also may have a cooling effect uh, on kind of the development of, of class struggle and you know how does this cooling effect manifested itself in in mexico well uh, first of all i wanted to point out about the world the worth uh, populism i think sometimes we can we use it but we also always need to be careful about the world itself especially because uh, at least here in latin american politics where populism is used mainly by the extreme right and the liberal right in order to attack anything that is not traditional politicians, for example, tradition traditional oligarchs politicians. Uh, so they put in the same way, in the, in the same bag, Trump, Bolsonaro, AMLO, Lula, and everything. And and I think it's quite complicated to 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 doing that. That's why we we prefer, at least for speaking about uh, Lopez Obrador, characterizing him as a nationalist developer, for example. Uh, but, but well, that's a uh, terms debate and so on. But No, but yeah. it's a really important debate to have. And to clarify that, I think, I think, I think you're absolutely right on being careful with, with the term populism because, yeah, Bolsonaro and AMLO are, are yeah, very... Yeah, but for the liberals are the same because they are against free market and representative democracy in a broad understanding. And... But we think it's underneath that argument. It's uh, it's hate against regular people getting involved in politics, not being just passive voters. Uh, and when regular people, Indians, used as a uh, as a negative in a negative exception, taking part in in politics, that we see, for example, in Peru, when our, an indigenous uh, a, a teacher and a rural teacher. He came to presidency. The right wing was attacking him because all oh, he's he's not prepared. He didn't study in Harvard and in the U.S. and and things like that. Uh, but well, anyway, yes. What what we think is that Lopez Obrador, and maybe that's a difference between Lopez, uh, Lopez Obrador and Trump and Bolsonaro, especially because he's not an extreme right guy, but also because he's not an outsider. He is a traditional politic politician that started in the nationalist period, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, party that emerged after the Mexican Revolution and stayed in power for nearly 80 years. And at one point, and we are facing some of the same contradictions of, with, with this party, because during the 20th century, pre-government uh, made, for example, this dirty war against the left-wing socialist militants. But at the same time, was the only country in Latin America, or one of the only countries, maybe there's one other that I don't remember, that, for example, didn't broke up relationships with Cuba and received a Salvador Allende as a state guest in, in Mexico, at the same time that socialists were jailed and disappeared, the local ones. And also pushed through, in the 20th century, political uh, economic policies that improved some autonomous relatively autonomous economic development. For example, the, the oil industry was nationalized, the energy industry was nationalized. So this is the kind of contradictions that we faced in the 20th century. And in somehow, in the 21st century, in a complete different context, etc., we are facing it at the same time with Lopez Obrador. So, for example, what is he's trying to do for cooling the, the social movements? He's making... Uh, a complete narrative that in which he says there are only two options in the political context in Mexico in the Lopez Obrador views. The conservatives, 
the traditional right wing, and us, that's what Lopez Obrador says, the progressive or, or the liberals. He used the same exception, uh, nearly as a, the same. So you are with me or you are against me? And in this polarization scenario, also the right wing uh, uses, because he, the right wing says it's democracy and freedom, or the Castro-Chavist, uh, socialist, communist dictatorship in the other hand. So in both sides, we are facing this polarization. So, and also that because Lopez Obrador was not an outsider, maybe you know that he won the elections, he was recognized as the winner of the elections when we presented to the election for the third time. He ran in 2006 and he faced a fraud, he ran in 2012 and faced a fraud, and finally in 2018 he ran, he won, and finally he was recognized as the winner. And during these 12 years, when he, he was organizing his campaign and preparing to win elections, we also seen the most uh, terrible consequences of the neoliberalism. We saw the war against drugs, that it was also already uh, only a war against people and militarization of the society, uh, with the extreme case, or the most known case, uh, of the Ayotzinapa students. We saw the attacks to the independent trade unions, just as the electricians and the teachers and many others. And we saw at the same time this, uh, the traditional governors making an amount of personal wealth based on the most cynical corruption. And for example, for uh, around 2010, the most famous and public recognized athlete in Mexico was uh, Lorena Herrera. And she was a golf player in, in, a, in a country where most of the people uh, is poor, it's is, is under the, the poor line. And a golf player, you know, you need huge country clubs for practicing and making tournaments was this with the uh, the main athlete recognized publicly. So that make an idea of how strongly the contradictions and the social anger was organized during these 12 years. And finally, in our perspective, after the consequences of the 2008 crisis, also between the bourgeoisie currents and tendencies, there was a breakup. So that make the complete framework that led uh, Lopez Obrador getting up and winning, and that his win, his win was recognized uh, by the state and the institutions. So, where Lopez Obrador is quite conscious that he won, also because millions of people voted him because they were angry and they wanted complete change. And what he said, for example, during his last campaign, is telling the state and the main bourgeois people that if he won, he didn't win the tiger will go out. I mean, that Lopez Obrador win was the last hope for avoiding what we in that moment were debating, maybe a crisis just as the Arab Springs, you know, popular uprising that is not possible to control and opening a deep uh, state and political crisis. So Lopez Obrador won, taking these hopes of change, but also taking this guarantee of cooling the social situation here. Uh, so many movements turn to making this kind of lobbying, and especially because in many key positions in the, in the, in the Lopez Obrador government, there are uh, personalities that used to be in the socialist left, used to be linked to the social movements uh, and so on. So there's a new institutional relationship between movements and the government, except for two in our point of view of two main uh, movements. One are the, is the feminist movement, that it's a massive and radicalized and growing movement here in Mexico, and that is not, it's impossible to be controlled by, by any political tendency, but also at the same time, uh, for example, he regrets to openly support the free abortion rights. And last year it came to a peak the crisis when he was supporting uh, Felix Salgado Macedonio as candidate for the government of the state of Guerrero in the south and he was facing Salgado Macedonio five prosecution processes for raping and Lopez Obrador defended, defended him. 
So the feminist movement started to crush with Lopez Obrador. And in this polarized uh, scenario that Lopez Obrador is trying to build, he said, okay, but maybe behind the feminists is the right wing that is only trying to destabilize us and to attack my government because uh, that's what happened. And of course, that made more different, difficult relationship. And the other main movement that it's not possible to completely get into this cooling scenario are what we call the eco-social uh, movements against uh, what we hear defined as megaproyectos. One of the main projects of Lopez Obrador government is building the so-called Tren Maya, uh, that it's a train in the Yucatan Peninsula, in the, the, the southeast region of Mexico, that will connect many of the touristic centers and industrial spots in the region and oil extraction spots with this huge train that will be, uh, be around I don't know, thousands of kilometers, but also around the train, huge uh, hotels and tourist complex, and just as, as Cancun. Uh, Cancun is not Mexico, actually, it's an apartheid. Uh, but, and that, that will mean environmental destruction, but also attacks to the indigenous and peasant communities in the region. And also in the Itzman, many of these cases of, of megaproyectos that are all around the country and that are facing, in many cases, still, they are facing these movements, they are still facing repression and violence. The most recent case is, for example, for Tomás Rojo. Tomás Rojo was murdered a couple of weeks ago, and he was the main leader of the Jackie tribe in, the, in Sonora, in the north in the border with Arizona, I guess, and they were struggling from uh, lots of years uh, defending uh, the access to water and against uh, dam facilities and so on, and he was killed uh, recently. So these two movements are the only ones, in our point of view, that they are not getting involved in this cooling uh, situation because the Lopez Obrador government uh, has no possible answer to them. Because in Lopez Obrador's point of view, it's only megaproyectos and feminism in the thinking of Lopez Obrador in his own words is a foreign ideology that was imported for destabilizing the traditional Mexican culture. That was the same thing that they pre-used in the 20th century, but saying about socialism that was foreign ideology and so on. So, no, it's really interesting, especially the 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 groups that are kind of outside of uh, uh, the AMLO project, especially kind of thinking about the U.S. experience while, you know, I suppose actually Joe Biden, the current president of the United States, uh, has kind of branded himself as doing a new deal of sorts uh, around uh, greening the economy and, and, and building infrastructure. And it's interesting, kind of the similar resistance that, that his projects itself are getting uh, from the left wing of, of the ecological movement and, and much of the ecological movement still because I guess it goes to show how dependent capitalism and national economies, uh, capitalist economies are on the fossil fuel industry, whether it's, you know, oil extraction and, and, and mineral extraction and stuff like that, uh, or natural gas extraction, as is often the case in the U.S., or if it's just using those resources industrially. Uh, to produce things, right, are, are, are essential to the capitalist economy and thus kind of are untouchable, even if it is uh, a liberal or centrist or progressive I don't know, leadership or government trying to, trying to green the economy. They're still going to remain. But I think early on when you were talking about kind of the, the importance of the FI to the PRT and its kind of connection uh, or kind of network as instead of networks, uh, between international socialist movements, I, I think maybe now is a great time to transition to talking about the the fourth and uh, what the FI, what the fourth international is, and maybe a good starting point is um, uh, the fourth international's historic relationship with Trotskyism. I know that's something that's one what Trotskyism even means has changed a lot since 1938, but also I think the FI and its relationship, as I understand it, has also changed quite a bit, uh, both in terms of how it understands Trotskyism, 
Uh, but whether or not it even is a Trotskyist organization in the very strict sense, I know we have like comrades from the Philippines uh, and elsewhere who aren't necessarily Trotskyists, but are committed to the project of the Fourth International uh, in some very instrumental ways. So maybe we could kind of talk about the Fourth International. What is what is its relationship to Trotskyism? Okay, well, I think that the FI, the Fourth International, if I have to define it, I will say it is a Marxist, socialist, and revolutionary international tendency, or international current, that was founded by Trotsky's followers and by Trotskyism. But actually, since it was founded, it never tempted to be a Trotskyist group. Actually, one of the tragedies that Trotsky itself recognized uh, is that many of the independent socialist tendencies that were outside of the Stalinist sphere at the time didn't get to the FI foundation. But the effort was to, to found the FI with Trotskyist and other socialists that are not completely aligned with Trotskyism. And actually, what we always explain, for example, in our formation courses and so on, is that actually Trotskyism is the, the word itself was uh, used by the enemy, by the Stalinist, in order to put it in the same bag all kind of independent socialist thinking outside of the Stalinist dogma. Interesting. So this is kind of like a, kind of like a similar use of the word yes, populist. Exactly. It's a it's a big bag that gets used to uh, kind of lump in many different currents with one. Bag yes, exactly. And, uh, and and the Stalinist used it as an insult. So uh, you're Trotskyist and so on. And of course, after the time passed on, it started to become an own political definition, mainly, I think, as a revolutionary socialist tendency that in the 20th century denied that the USSR, China, and East European countries were fully communist or were communist. We denied it. They were socialist countries. And of course, there are lots of debates that if they were state capitalism of or worker state, uh, bureaucratic, degenerated, etc. There are that there's there's a lot of debate around that, but the main point of convergence is that they we were or we as current were saying that's not that's not socialism, that's not our project. And actually, for example, the USSR used to be the country of the four lies, lies, because it was not a union, it was not socialist, it was not Soviet, and it was not a republic. So, uh, and from that point of view, it, they, uh, the FI and the Trotskyism as a whole, trying since it was born, uh, and also it was a current that was born in the worst political conditions, because they were attacked by the Stalinists, but also by the fascism, and in a very marginal way, in a mar mar marginal position. That was different that for example lenin and trotsky founding the third international when the revolution the Prussian revolution won and in a rise up moment with lots of victories and so on or the main victory of the russian revolution the AFI was founded at the beginning of the second world war with all these tragedies around that uh, and in a very marginal way in a very marginal uh, condition so from that point of view, as far as we understand it now, uh, the main goal of the FI was to, on one side, keep the, continu the continuity of the past uh, socialist and revolutionary experiences without the dogma of the Stalinist filter, for example, and taking uh, care of all the lessons and the historical experience of the Second International, the Paris Commune, and everything that came before. That is a lot of history and a lot of experience and a lot of learning. And at the same time, stop being a marginal group and trying to get all, uh, a big and mass influence revolutionary socialist organizations. In my point of view, what happened at the same time is that, how can I say, this kind of small propaganda group in some cases, and for different historical reasons, in some cases it became even romantic point of view, you know, like the militant that all the day has to do some meeting and always is organizing everything. Uh, and so that 
create in some places small groups of very dedicated and strong uh, militants, but with not the best mass and political influence in the working class and in the class struggle. And also, I think that it's been nearly 80 years or something like that since the FI was founded in the 38, that was in the 38. So we are nearly 80 years. Uh, so in that period, lots of things happened, lots of political experience happened in Europe, in Saudi, in, in Africa, in Latin America, in Asia, in the US, all the way. So the FI was also making the experiences of different political bets in uh, the countries, facing to some results. Of course, the main results were not uh, the best because it they were not great succeed because that was the case. We won't be uh, living under capitalism now. We are still <laughs> under capitalism, so it's obvious that we haven't succeeded in our goal uh, yet. So maybe I think it's yeah, kind of yeah. like go back and make sure I'm kind of picking up what you're laying down. So would it be fair to kind of frame, like, I guess there's like, we could, there's kind of two common framings, I think, of Trotskyism. There's one that is kind of has itself become dogmatic. And, you know, I think people in the U.S. are very familiar with this version because there's several splits of splits that have split along very narrow political lines uh, and kind of become very insular and sectarian. So there's this kind of version of Trotskyism, which is has become dogmatic and kind of revolves around uncovering what the true positions of, of Trotsky would have been, because those are the ones that are going to bring us to some revolutionary moment. And I think there's this kind of, if we want to call it Trotskyism, it's not really a systematic idea. It's more this kind of commitment to maybe, you know, what, what I would consider Marxist principles of the uh, ruthless criticism of all that exists. And also, also a commitment to kind of a democratic and open organization that can incorporate multiple different revolutionary currents into itself and also have open debate and discussion about what the nature of the period is and and, and what the strategic kind of imperatives are in, in the current moment. And I think this kind of critical Marxist project as well as kind of democratic Marxist project is what attracts me and interests me in the FI. And I think, I think that's kind of what separates it from other Trotskyists, if you want to say, in air quotes, because it it's kind of a very vague and meaningless term now, I think, especially as the Soviet Union has collapsed and many other socialist countries no longer exist or don't exist as they did, you know, 30 years ago even. So I think this is a really interesting and important thing to bring up and bring out. You know, I think this is also, you know, something the Solidarity has been committed to since its inception in 86 was this kind of idea of this kind of constant splintering and and, and and fractioning off is pretty detrimental and was very detrimental in the post-68 period, I think. I think a lot of people in Solidarity in 86 that came together kind of apologetic and recognized we made a mistake by kind of becoming dogmatic rather than kind of uniting around a common revolutionary trajectory while also retaining some sort of autonomy of opinion uh, and kind of independence of thought within the organization and affiliated members. So I think this is really interesting. And I think maybe this is a good good opportunity to maybe like talk about kind of how this is playing out currently in the FI. What is what is the FI doing now and, and how is it trying to kind of continue this project of an open and critical and democratic Marxist uh, revolutionary? Project? Yeah, actually, I was just going to say that, that in general, I think that Trotskyism is no longer as itself. A political reference that can be useful for the struggles today. It was important in the 20th century when you have the USSR, Yugoslavia, etc. Because it, that means where are you, what's your position through that main and uh, really important events and situations of the time. But after the collapse of the USSR, the capitalist restoration in China, basically, Trotskyism is now more like a, a kind of a political Her heritage, 
yeah, that that a political definition for the struggle today. I mean, we can debate a lot, and we need to do it and learn about what was the USSR, if it was a state capitalism or a bureaucratic degenerated, etc. And the debates of Trotsky in the '36 against fascism and the Spanish Civil War. We need to do all that. But if you and I are not agree about, for example, the debates between the Trotsky and the Bone in Spain, in the Spanish Revolution. Okay, we cannot be agree, but maybe we are agree about the tasks for building revolutionary socialism tendencies today. So taking Trotskyism as a complete references has this problem and also has the problem that, that Trotsky as a thinker and as a revolutionary was also a comrade, as, as you, as me, as anybody, of course. And uh, uh, so if we look out in detail for uh, his writings and his beds and so on, we can now not be agree with all of them, and that's not a that's not a sin. Maybe, for example, we can now. Of course, it's quite easy hundred years later saying that hey, maybe Trotsky could stop the rise of Stalinism before, and he didn't do it uh, until it was too late, started to struggle to the bureaucracy, uh, and that fucked up the complete twentieth century. Maybe. Uh, we can get to that conclusion. It's quite easy a hundred years later, of course, but that also means to take in, critically, uh, in, in a critical way this heritage without a refusing of that. That's important because but the FI is also proud of its past and its, and its history. It's not that, okay, Trotsky is from the 20th century, so we need to do something new and try to invent whatever uh, tendency now or whatever political definition is, because we also have to be conscious that we are not starting the fight. Fortunately, we are not the first one that are trying to change the world from below. There's been millions of people before us, and we need to learn from their experiences, so we can do it better now that it's our chance. And also to give some lessons for the ones that will come after us. So that's why we are we, we don't yeah, as the FI as far as I understand we don't regret of the Trotskyism as itself, but we need to give it historical and important meaning. Especially and that's uh, I want to go for your question about how to build these revolutionary socialist organizations that can help in the way through socialism. And one conclusion that the FI get long years ago is that the idea that in some ways we use that we need to build only our organizations and it's only around our own organic growth that we will get to the goal so if it takes us 10 50 100 years doesn't matter because we are the true revolutionaries because we are TFI and we are the true Trotskyists and so on we quit about that that idea of only building ourselves uh, as the main goal. Because that also has consequences in the movements. If you only want to recruit, you will go to a movement and do something for getting two, three, four people to your organization. But if you want to build useful political tools for the class struggle, you won't be satisfied only with recruiting four or five people. And, you, and also, we need to be uh, conscious that Fortunately, we are not the only ones that are thinking that capitalism is not working, that we need a radical change. There are other currents with other traditions, other backgrounds, other history around there that uh, are having the same conclusion and maybe we can get together and build together. And that's the case, as you said, for example, for the Filipino section now or the Pakistani section that are organizations and and important parties that didn't were founded with the Trotskyist framework and in the Trotskyist debate because their historical and geographical situation and because that's life and, and that's it. And we need to get together with them. And we cannot get to those comrades and say, yeah, but what do you think about the United Front policy of Trotsky and Stalinism in Germany in the 34? I mean, that's, uh, that's hilarious, but, but in some way it happens. And also, we think as a strategic bet and a strategic point of view that in this 21st century we are facing a growth on the anti-capitalist conscious because 
it's every day clearer for more and more people that capitalism doesn't work. But at the same time, we are starting to build, taking in account the huge defeat that the 89, the USSR collapse and the Reagan and neoliberalism period gave to the working class. So the working class itself, it's also building itself in, a, in different ways different than the only that from the traditional trade unions. That doesn't mean, because we are Marxists, that the working class doesn't exist anymore, etc. But as Marx or following the Marxism itself, that means that the working class, it's building itself, it's rebuilding itself, it's rebuilding it, their ways to organize and their political culture and their political references. And we want to be part of that process. Of course, in, and I just want to end with this, that of course that will mean that we will make bets and maybe we will lose, but uh, the only the conclusion is just organic growth and doing basically nothing in order to uh, make influence in the working class. Yeah, and I think also, like this is what you're saying is really interesting to me because I, I totally agree that we're kind of in this, in many ways the slate was wiped clean by neoliberalism and now... Yeah, we're in a process of rebuilding. I think in the United States, that process is still in its infancy. Bernie Sanders helped kick it off. But before that, there was a lot of stuff bubbling under the surface that had appeared several times, like uh, the Black Lives Matters movement and stuff like that. And I think what's interesting to me right now is that I think you're absolutely right. Like, socialists, revolutionary socialists would be missing out in a very severe and real way by not participating in these social movements, whether it's Black Lives Matter or the DSA even if those movements don't necessarily have your own politics. From my perspective, it's it's better to be where working class people are starting to congregate and congregate with increasingly radical ideas uh, than in your own group where you already agree, right? You, you have no chance of influencing people unless you're actively participating in the movement that's kind of coming to be right now. And I think also, you know, we see this in Brazil. It's a little bit more advanced uh, than the U.S. with PSOL where there's another kind of coming together of many different currents, uh, some of them formerly currents that were formerly together, but are now kind of indiv individual groupings coming together to build this like relatively successful or something that's becoming successful electorally uh, in PSOL. You know? So I, I think there's lots of space for growth for the socialist movement, and I think if we're going to learn anything from the past, at least the U.S.'s radical history, that splitting apart because you think you're right and that your views will get you to socialism is a really problematic course because it's going to lead to this kind of rapid disintegration. You know, I think one thing that I have been thinking about and talking about this kind of stuff with my old, my comrades who are kind of from that 68 generation uh, is this idea that, well, if you're so right, why don't we have communism now? Yeah. <laughs> if you had all the answers, we would be there. And we don't. And I think we have to kind of go into these projects accepting maybe for this this idea that we might be wrong we're at least certainly partially wrong because if we were totally right we would we would be the ones yes in exactly and and, and of course we haven't succeeded until now and actually for example now that you brought the episode experience is quite interesting but it, it because it has some of these characteristics that i was saying because as maybe the, the brazilian cameras explain the episode started as a split of the PT. So that means that at, at what point in the lots of lots of lots of years before, the FIRs made a bet through building the, the PT, but not also the FIRs, but most of the currents of the socialist left. And at some point the PT changed its characteristics, it changed in many points that took the cameras to the split. Some historical FIRs stayed in the PT and that meant that the FI finally, after long debates, said no, we are we will go and build the, the PSOL. So but that doesn't mean saying that starting from the first step building the PT was a mistake. Because if you take that point of view, that just means that I don't know that you don't have to do nothing. Yeah, building the PT and how people would say, Oh well it's a mistake to build the PT. And I think I think, yeah, that is a very problematic way of looking at things because as Marxists, we're kind of historical materialists, which means, you know, we understand that 
where we are now is contingent upon everything that's happened before it. We wouldn't have PSOL if it wasn't for this experience in PT, and hopefully PSOL, because of this experience in PT, uh, will maybe develop in a, in a more militant direction, in a more explicitly socialist direction, much longer and in a much deeper way than the PT ever did. So um, we're getting close to the end here, and I think one thing I want to say is that one of the things that I most appreciate about my experience with the FI, with the Fourth International, are all the opportunities that I get to have conversations with people like you, with my comrades in PSOL, uh, and, and comrades many other places where I haven't interviewed them yet. So, you know, I think this is a really great opportunity. The FI presents a great opportunity to, to be in conversation and kind of try and synthesize our experiences to figure out which direction is left, which direction uh, we ought to go. I think there's a good way to end this episode might be for you just to say, like, I don't know, any last words? What do, you, what do you want to share with anyone in the U.S. or anyone who's listening? Okay, let's have a really concrete and precise question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know that maybe uh, a call for taking that this spirit of facing the new events, because all political situation will be absolutely unseen, because that's history. This a phrase of Marx that the history repeats two times and so on as a tragedy and as a comedy. It's a it's a, it's a metaphoric way of, of speaking at the end. Any political situation will be unseen and of course we need to take it and face them as it is. As, as Lenin said in a concrete analysis of the concrete situation, but that doesn't mean trying to use the same answers all the time, but trying to build the new answers, taking in account all the historical background that currents at the FI represent. And I think that that's the, uh, a key point uh, about the FI today, because in some way you can have the danger of these two extremes. One saying that this is completely new, so we need to start over from zero again, etc. And that will leave us to just uh, bury up lots of experience and tons of debates and tons of uh, previous combats. But also the other extreme of saying, Trotsky already said that whatever, it's, it's a symmetrical mistake. Uh, but the FI spirit now is trying to do with the broad party bets, with thinking what does Trotsky means today and all these experiences and also openly open debates with other traditions without regretting of our own, it's a good starting point for facing the 21st century conflicts and revolutions Hopefully, that hopefully will happen. And especially because, as and, and at the same time, without being proud of our history, but because there's a phrase that I used too much of Daniel Ben Said and I wanted to quote with it. He's, he used to say that when we get involved in the revolutionary socialist policies, we are not only getting involved for a program, for a political organization that, of course, we are doing, but at the same time, we are getting a compromise with thousands of militants that came before to us, before us, and there's a commitment and there's a duty of not giving up. We can have debates, we can even split if that's, if that's the case, but we cannot, uh, because we need to be loyal to the ones that fought before us. It's not, uh, it's forbidden to give up. And we need to keep going because the other alternative is that uh, capitalism basically destroyed. So let's keep on going, let's keep fighting, and let's keep making these debates, these uh, exchanges between experiences in different countries and in different movements, struggles, and so on. And and that's it. And thank you for, for the invitation, of course. Hey, my pleasure. I think that was an excellent way to end this episode. Uh, keep, keep going. going. <laughs> keep it. Yeah. I mean, that's all we can yeah. do, right? But before we close out, I, I just wanted to ask you if there's any websites or social media that people can follow to keep up with what's going on. With yeah, PRT. Uh, PRT. It's a prtmexico.org website. And Bandera Socialista in Facebook and different social networks and for the FI it's a fourth.international.org I guess as the official website of the FI 
I'm from there. You can watch out for the different countries and the different organizations around the world, what they are doing, etc. And it's a starting point for, for doing that. And of course, the IRE website also, that the IRE is a, it's a training, political training center, the link to the FI. You can also see there some of the debates and books and texts that put the, put what I try to explain in a more exact and correct way that but I did it. It's IRE.org, I guess, or something like that. Yeah, there's there's also the magazine internationalviewpoint.org, oh, yes. which is also really great. Like, there's a lot of excellent articles yes. on there. So I just want to say thank you so much, Luis. This has been a really great interview. I've enjoyed a lot. I've, I've felt like I learned a lot, and I hope everyone else listening has too. If you've been listening to this podcast through the Solidarity website, you can now access it through most podcasting apps, including iTunes and Spotify and Google Podcasts. If you're using iTunes, please be sure to give us a review to help us move up the charts. It's incredibly helpful uh, in getting the word out about socialism from below. If you like what you heard on today's episode and want to find out more about Solidarity, check out our website at www.solidarity-us.org. You can find us on Twitter, at SolidarityUS, on Instagram, at Solidarity1986, and on Facebook, at facebook.com slash solidarityus. We're also working on getting some social media accounts up for this podcast specifically, and you can find us on Twitter at SOC from below. There's not a lot of content there yet, but hopefully by the time you find it, there will be. I would also encourage you to check out our comrades at the Socialist Journal Against the Current uh, on their website at www.againstthecurrent.org, and you can find them on Twitter at ATC underscore mag and on Instagram at ATC.mag. Thanks again to our producer, James, who does an amazing job on these episodes. He also makes fantastic music, which you can find uh, his beat tape on all those great music streaming apps called Optimism of the Will. Thanks again for listening, comrades. Until next time, solidarity forever. Mm-hmm.